You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have Daniel Homeland on the show. Daniel is the managing partner of Elon Capital, where he is an active investor in over a thousand multifamily doors. Beyond being a manager of Elon Capital, Elon Capital, he is also the host of the Win Multifamily podcast, where he interviews successful real estate investors across the spectrum of real estate investing and is able to pull out some of the best practices that they can apply to real estate investing. The coolest part is that you'll learn today is that Daniel started and runs a successful real estate club at one of the Fortune 50 companies. And I'm super interested to learn more about that is a secret ninja networking tip that I think a lot of people can gain insight on. But with that, Daniel, welcome to the show. Matt, it's good to be here. And just to say one thing really quickly, the Win Multifamily Show is actually rebranding real estate investing for professionals radio. New year, new you. Yep. There you go. So we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What is your favorite ice cream? So I was thinking about this and I like vanilla with caramel, but dark cherry is also really good. Okay. So okay. It's, it's one of those. I'm, I'm going to go with uh, vanilla and caramel. Okay. Okay. I've actually got a vanilla caramel cheesecake in my fridge right now that I plan on eating later tonight. The controversial topic that we get into a lot, though, is are you a toppings person or a no toppings person? I like caramel. (laughs) So usually one topping, but not too many toppings. You can't overdo it. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? Tell us about what you do. My company, we invest in cash flowing apartment complexes. Primarily what we do is we partner with operators that are local boots on the ground and We make sure that they have a successful track record that they've already accomplished. And then we come in, we add capital to their uh, deals. We uh, work with them on asset management, you know, all the different operations, such as talking to your legal advisors and tax advisors. So we become part of the team and operate cash flowing apartments. Awesome. And then tell us where your real estate journey began. How'd you get started? In my mind, where I actually started was when I was the thing that planted the seed and maybe this isn't actually where I started, but when I was really young, my parents had a a big problem in that my grandparents owned an apartment complex. And when my grandfather passed away, they had to figure out what to do with it. I was a 10 year old and I was listening to my parents and they were struggling with, oh, we have so many taxes. The inheritance tax was so large that it was going to force us to sell the building. So they were going through all the headaches of doing that. And one thing that I realized is that my grandfather worked his entire career at International Harvester, which is a farming equipment company. And it wasn't till he retired that my grandmother said, hey, let's partner with your brother and go buy this 120 unit over in Aurora, Chicago. And so they did that once they retired and they spent a lot of their retirement years fixing that building up. But the thing that stuck with me when I was 10 is that my parents have got a lot of problems now. (laughs) And then when I got older, I realized, oh, they have these problems because my grandpa actually had something to hand down to them. And he didn't actually have this something to hand down because of his job. He got that after he retired from his job. And so it, it planted in my head that, you know, investing along the way and moving towards your retirement and your future and something you can leave for your, your legacy and for your kids is a worthwhile thing to do. And if you can help other people get there also, that is the most wonderful thing. 
I think I just heard you say that at 10 years old, you owned a 110-unit apartment complex. Not, not me, to, my, my parents. <laughs> I, which I, I have am, to go on record, is the youngest I think I've ever heard. So that's <laughs> awesome. Did they end up selling it? They were forced to. The inheritance taxes were too much. Yeah. So you had a little bit of experience in the family on seeing big multifamily complexes. It, where did you start? Did you, did, were you a part of that sale or did your, your parents continue on real estate investing? No, no. My parents are, are actually avid stock investors now and oh. started investing in real estate. My, my mother would like to invest in real estate more. I started investing in real estate pretty much out of college with single family homes, just buying them and renting them out and selling them. That was in 2002. And after a while, I also started giving hard money loans to lenders. And that came to an abrupt end in, in 2008, where uh, one of my rehabbers didn't give me my money back. And I instead ended up with a house that I didn't necessarily want all the way over in Florida. And I held on to that house for a number of years, getting a good mortgage-free rent for, uh, for about seven years until 2015. Ended up selling that and looking at what was next, and I found multifamily. So some of our listeners might be, I want to get clarification on the hard money. Some of our lenders, our listeners might be new to what hard money is. Can you tell us a little bit about what hard money is? So basically, the idea is, is that I'll find people that have good rehabbing skills. They will find a house. I'll lend them 80% of the purchase price plus some of the renovation budget, and they'll go ahead, buy the property, fix it up. They'll you know, sell it for whatever they're selling it after it's fixed up. And I get a point on my loan and 15% back on my money in you know, six months. Whoa. So, it's, so it's six months annualized. So 15% annualized. So seven and a half yeah. in total in six months. So yeah. it's, it's one of those rinse and repeat type of operations where if you have somebody who's really good at rehabbing, you know, you fund their projects, they give you some of the proceeds. Yep. So the, for those that are just new to real estate investing, the people that are out there flipping homes, that's what they do. They go to somebody like Daniel who gives them money to buy the house, to do the renovation. It might sound high, a one point and 15% annualized, but hey, if the numbers work, they work. And then they just take that money, rehab the house and flip it. Are you fully out of that business now? You, you oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I actually did that because at the time we, we were living in Europe. We were part of a volunteer group over in Europe. And I just needed to find a way to make a little extra money to support the family over there. Yeah. So we're, yep. we're not doing that anymore. We're entirely multifamily now. Did you still have single family homes during the 2008 housing crisis? Oh, yeah. I ended up getting the rehabber's home because he never paid me back. So instead, he deeded me the house after some headaches and negotiation with him. But he deeded me the house. And so I ended up with a house in Florida that was mortgage free that I just rented out for the next seven years. Yeah. Did, now, you shifted into multifamily, and I want to get into like why. So why did you shift into multifamily? What are some of the benefits that you saw in multifamily versus single family? A lot of it had to do with educating myself. I took a little bit of time off because I was tired of renting and, and dealing with the single family home. And during that time, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I wanted to find a way to get into investing that that wasn't so much hassle. One of the best ways of doing that is passively investing in real estate. And so I started following, you know, a number of the podcasts that are out there. Joe Fairless's podcast I listen to every day. Now I listen to Whitney Sewell's real estate syndication show fairly often. And they really taught me that in order to 
minimize your time and maximize your benefit, you have to be able to scale your business. And so one of the advantages of doing that is that first of all, multifamily properties have significantly better tax benefits than single family properties. You get a lot of upfront depreciation, which you basically gives you tax-free income while you own the property. When you sell it, of course, there's capital gains and, and, and depreciation recapture. During that time, you've got great tax benefits. One of the other things too is that it it lowers the risk associated with it. When you've got a single family home, it's either occupied or it's not. You know, you, you're either fully you know occupied or fully vacant. And so, having multifamily homes, there's usually a very well known percentage for a particular metro area. Let's say you're down in Houston, and Houston is 91% occupied most of the time. And each of the classes of properties, A, B, and C, will have their own occupancy rates for a given metro area. So, just knowing that you're not going to be fully vacant is a great thing. The other thing is that when you're operating a large apartment complex, you have a very large budget that goes into that building. And you budget for items that will break on a regular basis. In a single family home, if you are getting, say, let's say you've got a really good property, you're getting $400 of cash flow from this property a month and the heater goes out. Well, suddenly you've got a $2,000, maybe a $3,000 item, or maybe the plumbing goes out or multiple things happen. You know, it's really easy to spend your entire year's worth of income on repairs. And in a multifamily property, the lenders and you as an operator should be putting aside certain parts of your budget in order to, you know, repair those items as they go forward. And so that's just part of the normal operating procedure. And the returns that go to the investors assume all of those things are going into the budget already. So you've got a much more predictable, you know, rate of return on a multifamily property. Yeah, I like to think of a multifamily property as a little small business in that sense. Yeah, so you're budgeting absolutely. for the year, income expenses and things like that. It's funny, I'm smiling because when you said the heater instance, you just basically described my 2020. Two properties in my single family portfolio got hit with a flood and an HVAC repair. And I mean, it just wiped out the cash flow for the entire year. So I know we got connected because I'm looking at expanding into the multifamily properties there for that specific reason. With single family, you got one income source. With multifamily, you have multiple. It's all about horizontal incomes, not necessarily vertical incomes. And that's how you shift there. You mentioned A, B, and C properties. Can you give our listeners a little bit about what that means and how properties are classified? So your A-class properties are brand new, wonderful looking properties. These are properties that your high income earners are probably going to rent out. They might be in a nice area of town with a lot of walkable amenities. You're usually brand new, like I said. And from an investor's point of view, you've got much lower expenses on an A-class property, but you're going to pay a whole lot more. So typically, your cash flow tends to be less. Also, if you're a multifamily value-add investor, there's no value to really add to an A-class property. It's already you know, brand new. So a lot of value-add investors go for B and C-class properties, which would be equivalent to a B-class property would be you know, 20 to 30 years old, still in a great area, lots of uh, people that are high income still rent there. But it's, you know, it's not quite the cream of the crop. And then the C class is more of your working force. So a lot of people who are paid hourly wages, 
might live in these apartment communities. Maybe they're in a little rougher part of the neighborhood, but not a ghetto. It's still a very safe place to be, but it's an older property. You're looking at a property that, you know, is built in the 70s or 80s, perhaps. And, and then D-class properties is your lowest down. That would be your, your ghetto where crime and property theft and, and vandalism, things like that are going to start playing a major role in, in your returns. Yeah, the way I'd like to describe it to people, too, is like the A-class renters are renters by choice. The B and C-class people are renters by necessity because whether they're income bracket or they're just blue-collar workers or one reason or another. So that's kind of how I delineate it in my mind. The other thing that's interesting to say about the classes is that when you have an economic downturn, people that are A-class renters are going to say, oh, I need to you know, tighten my budget a little bit. They're going to move down to the B-class. And the B-class people are usually, you know, to some extent going to move down to the C-class. And so being in B and C-class properties is really a sweet spot because people will come down to those and people will move up from, you know, from the D-class properties to those. You're sitting in the middle where economic shifts are not going to be quite as dramatic for you. A, B, and C, is it A property in New York or Los Angeles, a same A property in Davenport, Iowa, or do they change geographically, or is it just A class is A class no matter where it's at? Look at the United States. There's something like 400 different metro markets in the United States, and each of them moving through different bust and boom cycles. So in California right now, there's a lot of migration out of California. One of the uh, stats that I saw couple weeks ago was that San Francisco rents were down. And I, I believe this was in August, but they were down 21% in Whoa. San Francisco. You definitely have a recession scenario coming in there for properties that are renting out in San Francisco. On the other hand, you know, you go to the Southeast or Texas or some of these areas that are perhaps a little warmer, perhaps they have a lower regu regulatory environment. These areas are receiving the benefits of that migration. Even Boise over here near where I live, I live in Portland, Oregon. Boise is getting a lot of people from both California, Oregon and Washington. Their market's up 20% last year, 2020. Yep. So different locations will have different boom and bust cycles. And one of the things you want to do as a real estate investor is look at the demographics, see where people are going, why they're going there, and try to anticipate the areas that are going to have growth. 100%, 100%. So I want to kind of repeat two main points that I heard from that is following the path of migration where people are going. And I heard this said the other day, draw a smiley face on the United <laughs> States. And that's essentially where people are going is that southeast, southwestern places where it's warm and it's tax friendly, etc. And the second thing, you and I seem to be pretty aligned with how we invest. I don't invest in A-class properties because I think it's great on the times when when it's going up, but when times get tough, those are the people that are willing to move out of those $4,000 a month rentals or $2,500 a month rentals and go for something else. I typically invest in the Nashville area where the median rent is probably like $1,500. I like to shoot for that $1,200 mark. Just enough below where you're not getting, you know, people that are struggling to pay their rent day in and day out and might be a criminal risk to the area. But also right where that point, if somebody moves from a $4,000 a month apartment, they're not going all the way to the bottom. They'll find somewhere in the middle. And so that's that nice little sweet spot there. Yeah, Nashville, Huntsville, those areas are really doing well right now. Did you see the uh, news yesterday that the Pentagon said they're going to put the Space Command in Huntsville? I did not. That's good news for investors there. I want to mark, pound the table now, mark my words, Huntsville is going to be like the next Raleigh in 20 or 25 years. 
Huntsville's got a lot of aerospace. They've got a lot of government workers there, a lot of stable jobs that really cause that area to be an interesting place to look at it. There's a fair amount of competition there also and for, you know, a tertiary secondary market. It's an interesting place. I know a couple of people who are investing there. We haven't looked there yet, but mainly because, you know, we're focused on other areas at the moment. What are some of those areas out of curiosity? Currently, 196 unit in Houston, 172 in Memphis, a 145 in Fort Smith, and a 200 in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. Are there any other areas that you are looking at right now that you didn't just mention? Our criteria, and we like to stay mobile with our ability to diversify across different geographical regions. So basically, we're looking for good operators that are in certain locations. So right now, actually this weekend, I'm going to be flying out to Des Moines, Iowa and looking at a property there with a couple of partners. We're going to do a walkthrough of all the units that are there. So it'll be a fun time. You'll see some pictures of, you know, up on LinkedIn and Facebook, probably. We're also looking at Florida. Florida is a really interesting spot because a lot of people are moving there, tax-friendly, business-friendly environment. Uh, so we're, we're looking at the Bradenton, Sarasota area as well. Okay. So you mentioned good operators. I heard this analogy more and more over the past six months, and it's surprising I've never heard the analogy until like six months ago. You either invest in the jockey or you invest in the horse, and you're specifically talking about the jockey in this situation. You want to find a good operator. How do you go find those good operators? Like Any tips or tricks on how you're finding them and maybe any questions that you're asking to source whether they're a good operator or not? There's a lot of people that are out there that are doing multifamily you know, investment. And the first thing you've got to look for is how many units do they already own? So, you know, the, the people that we've partnered with have around 17 to 1800 units in each of the locales that we've partnered. That tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, that this isn't their first syndication. They already have an established property manager in that area. They've already got all their accounting and legal all set up. They know the renovation people in that area. They're going to be the ones that are be are going to be finding the, the, the construction companies and the boots on the ground. Usually when we're putting together our syndications too, we like to see at least one person in the syndication have a background in construction and at least one person have a background in finance. So we do look for specific roles within our general partnership that cover all the areas that you need. And that's one of the things I like about real estate is obviously I'm an engineer. I'm a tech guy. I like numbers. That's my forte. And I also like talking with people. So there's that. But, you know, I don't like doing all the jobs that are out there. I don't do any broker relations at all. For the most part, I leave that to the operator. You know, that allows the whole team to break up jobs to different people and uh, to balance the work. You just mentioned something there that I've never heard anybody say like, hey, I'm looking at operators with specific skill sets. I love that. But I want to hone in on the construction piece specifically, because I don't know if this is across the country, but boy, the markets where I'm invested in right now, anything breaks or needs some kind of heavy duty construction work, they are hard to find right now. And I don't know if that's just because Nashville is just a boom town where there's cranes everywhere, or if that's the fact that there's so much stimulus money coming in that most people don't necessarily have to go to work to kind of pay their bills day in and day out. But finding someone with a deep bench of construction workers is a huge asset right now. So if you're out there listening and you've got that bench of workers or you have some expertise in there, there's more value that you can bring to an operator like Daniel than you maybe even give yourself credit for. Absolutely. In one of our syndications, the one in Memphis, uh, the partner there came from a construction background and he worked himself up to be a a partner in that firm and then left it. 
And with the other one, the gentleman on our, our GP down in Port Smith, he actually owns a construction company. But just having knowledge construction is yeah. incredibly valuable because, you know, you have to be able to go through and do your due diligence, do your walkthroughs, know when somebody's ripping you off on a repair. Those are great skills to have. Yeah. I like to joke that I'm not handy at all. Like if you see me with a hammer, you wouldn't know if I was left-handed or right-handed. I'm so unhandy. So are there any trends right now in multifamily real estate or in real estate in general that you're kind of following? I mean, you seem to have a good data-driven background on real estate. I just kind of want to pick your brain on that to see if there are any trends you're following. Obviously, there's a huge amount of migration going on. COVID in the last year has dislodged a lot of people from large metropolitan areas. They're moving to the suburbs. They're moving to the country. I think that's a well-known trend that people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, one of the trends I want to emphasize, too, is that it at least you know, being C-class properties, also in A actually for that matter, although we don't own any, we haven't been seeing very much of a, a drop in occupancy. So people are generally paying their rents on time. We, we've had around a one to 2% increase in our vacancy rates across our whole portfolio. And there is an increase in the amount of delinquent rent. But most people are very open to coming up with a payment plan or somehow, you know, working with the property managers in order to, to make that right. We've got a couple of people, but very few people just say, I know you can't kick me out. And so I'm going to stay here and, you know, until the eviction moratorium lifts. So that, that's one trend that I want to highlight, too, is that it's it's been really stable because people don't want to lose their homes. People want, especially in the middle of a pandemic, need to have someplace to live. They know if they are squatters in a apartment complex, then the next apartment complex, you know, might not let them in. So they're usually pretty good about that. One of the other trends that I see, too, is uh, just increase in regulations in a lot of areas. Uh, here in Oregon, we've seen rent control come in. And it's, it's an interesting proposition because the rent control, they set a cap for how much you can raise it, your rent in a year. And in Oregon, it's, it's fairly ridiculously high. We have got like a 10% cap. You can't raise your rent more than 10% a year. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to do that. So I don't have any problem investing here. And me personally, I think that when you're looking to create a business plan, the thing that you want to do is you want to eliminate all the areas that could introduce outside risk. And when I see governments that are in that have a tendency towards regulation, then I know that's going to introduce an increased business risk to our, you know, to our property. So I tend not to invest in any of the coastal areas or places that have that type of regulating mindset. I think it's much better to have the property managers and the people that own the buildings work it out directly with the tenants. And so there's that as well. What would you say? Um, I don't, not trying to do, get down political or things like that, but what would you say to somebody that may be a tenant that's saying, Hey, why would you need to raise the rent more than 10%? Like you're just a rich landlord that's trying to get rich off of people. Like, what's the comeback to that? Because I think I've got an answer sure. to that. I just kind of want to understand what. Well, you're it's. Thinking. I mean, it's the slippery slope, right? Of course, we're not going to raise the rent ten percent. I think no. that the largest rent increase in the United States last year was in Phoenix, Arizona, and that was actually an average of nine point two percent rent increase. Yeah. So that's crazy. But at the same time. You know, once a regulation comes in place, then, you know, something happens. There's another, you know, COVID type event. There's a slippery slope in regulation. You know, you'll gradually see that number come down or in other regulations introduced. And so what you're seeing there is just a tendency to have governments come in and interrupt the free market. 
where prices are being set based on negotiations from, you know, landlords and tenants. And so whenever you see regulations come in and change the equation, that always creates distortions within the market. For instance, in rent control, if you can't raise rents on a regular basis, it's, you know, areas like New York, other areas that have been rent controlled, you have a tendency towards seeing landlords knowing they can't put extra investment into the building. And so therefore, the people that are rent controlled start getting a reputation of being, you know, a slumlord, or somebody who's not investing in the property. And you don't want to get into a situation like that. You don't want to get into a situation where you can't invest in the property and make profit. You want to have a wonderful property that's got happy tenants that is well-maintained and extra regulations like that make it difficult to do. That would be my answer. So I'm glad you said that because I don't know what the right answer is here. Clearly, we have a housing shortage and affordable housing shortage for a lot of people in America. And I want people to have a safe roof over their head and feel comfortable in, in their environment and have a place to live. I come from a very, very poor part of the country and I've seen a lot of poverty. I know what poverty looks like and I'm not saying that we should be kicking people out. However, if you cap potential upside or revenue then maybe somebody doesn't fix a leaking pipe and then maybe lead leaks into the water and then people drink the water and all of a sudden they're sick and we've got a whole nother set of issues. So that kind of would be my pushback there. Not saying that that's right or wrong. I think if you cap the amount of revenue that somebody can make, then they're not going to invest it in the property to make sure it's safe. And that's ultimately what I want as a landlord is, are my tenants safe? Do they enjoy living there? Can they pay rent in that order? Yeah, and I agree with you. We definitely have an affordability crisis in the United States. And so as an investor, I'm looking for markets where I can say, oh, there's a there's a below market rent here and a property that's not doing as well. Let's go in and fix it up, provide a better location for people, and that'll make our tenants happier. And we can charge an extra premium for the rent for doing that too. Yeah. Are there any common value adds that you do to your multifamily oh, yeah. unit? There's all sorts of basic common ads that you can do. One of the more common ones nowadays is just adding a washer and dryer unit. Uh, yeah. A lot of times you can you know, put a washer and dryer unit in and um, that increases the value of the rent or you could explicitly say, hey, we've got a unit that has no washer and dryer and a unit that does have a washer and dryer and let the tenant choose which one they want. That's common. But you know, uh, when you take over, a lot of times it's about improving the exterior. So down in Fort Smith, we put in you know, a dog park, a pergola, some picnic tables, things like that. We put in some nice walls and fencing just, just to make the property look nicer. And of course, in, on the inside, fixing any problems that are there, uh, leaks, toilets, you know, extra paint is kind of cliche, but it helps. And yeah. so just going through and it, it depends on the situation. It might either be a light renovation or a heavy renovation, but there's a lot of common things you can do. And usually having that person that's got a background in construction really helps. Yeah. The washer and dryer, I think is key there because, you know, when I talk about increasing income at a property, people only think about rent. And I've got a unit where I rent out a storage shed for 25 bucks a month. That thing cost me 200 bucks, right? It paid for itself in mm-hmm. eight months. So washer you know- and dryer is key. I'm watching the Wi-Fi trend. I think units that provide good, stable internet connections, especially in Florida where everything is concrete around you because of the hurricanes, is going to be super interesting. And then the last thing I would say is, I heard someone say this the other day, and I would be interested to hear your commentary back on this, is they said they really try to invest in the community and make sure that the residents of the apartment complex feel like they're a part of a community 
because people are less likely to go move across the street or across town if they feel connected with someone else in the apartment complex as a friend or whatever. What they focus on is like, yeah, there's a lot of exterior and interior things you could do. But after that, making sure that you have community events once a month, once a week and things like that, where people get to know each other. I just found this group called Apartment Life who mm-hmm. does exactly that. And I, honestly, I, I haven't talked to them yet and I don't know much about them, but just they help organize community events. They're a, they're a nonprofit group that's interested in helping people feel more connected. And I'm going to be reaching out to them. They sound like a wonderful group. I wanted to throw one other tip in there for you. Going through and improving the environmental condition of the property actually helps you save quite a bit of money. So going in and installing low flush toilets, low flush water, but not poor low flush toilets. You want something that actually works, but something that reduces the amount of water usage actually, you know, saves quite a bit of money. So you can be environmentally friendly and save money doing that. That'd be something that uh, I, you know, we do on most of our buildings. And by the way, any capital raisers out there, you have to have an ESG plan, I think, moving forward if you want to go get big government money. I mean, Fannie and Freddie this year is going to have certain allocation that they're doing towards low and affordable and safe income housing. But I guarantee you over the next probably 10 years, especially with the new administration, you're going to see some kind of ESG, green tech, solar power, whatever it looks like. Right now, Fannie and Freddie have their green loans that they do. And yeah. uh, they have certain caps on the amount of loans they can give out that are you know, not green loans, but their green loans are actually unlimited. If you meet the qualifications for a green loan, they'll usually give you a slightly better loan terms uh, because they want to sell those more. So it's a good thing to be able to do that and see if Fannie and Freddie May will you qualify for one of their green loans. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's a great tip there. So I want to shift gears on you. And we haven't even talked about your real estate club yet. I'm a huge interest in. So first of all, tell us why you have a real estate club. Like, What are the benefits there? What do you do with the real estate club? Part of it is that the company that I work at, I'm actually a community manager there. I just enjoy teaching and it's kind of in my nature that I enjoy being with people. I enjoy, you know, talking, giving information and seeing people have the light come on. That's really something that uh, gives me value. I enjoy putting together groups like this in our group. We've got around 650 people that are, that are currently getting our event notifications and we meet once a week on Fridays. It's a place where a lot of people who have zero real estate education can come in and listen to, you know, great speakers. It makes our place to work a better place to work. People feel like they're getting good education and it's a great way to build your network also for all those reasons. How did you get that approved? I know we've talked that you do it at lunchtime. So is your company okay with that? Did you have to go through a proper chain? Like anybody that's listening out there, how could they start doing that? (laughs) If you contact us at Real Estate Investing for Professionals, we actually are starting a mastermind for people that want to start REI clubs at their place of business. So if you are interested in putting together a club, we'll definitely, we'll help you with, uh, you know, introducing you to speakers that you can bring in, having resources that you can use in order to get your club started. And for me, what I did, it's going to be different for every person. The first thing you should know is that you have to go through the right channels in your company. You know, go to your HR people, go talk to other people who have started club and ask them, how did they start their club inside this business? 
So at where I work, we have clubs for all kinds of things. Our business actually really supports clubs because they know that it makes it a great place to work. There's a choir club, there's chess club, there's all sorts of clubs for uh, every different group that's out there. Uh, there's lots of hiking clubs. That's kind of fun. So it, we also had a stock investment club and a startup investment club, but no real estate club. One of the things that I'd say here is if you can find a niche, that's where you should go. Because if you, if you do the same thing that everybody else does, it's going to be like swimming upstream. But if you can find a niche, go ahead and do that. So in this particular case, I went to HR and I said, hey, we've got a stock investment club. We've got a startup investment club. I'd love to run the real estate investment club. And I got very little pushback. They said, okay, well, we'll connect you with the right people. And one of the things that I did also was, is I not only approached HR, but I approached several of the ERGs, the employee resource groups that we have that are there to support employees. And they actually, at least in our company, help run multiple clubs as well. So I went to them and I said, how can I start a club? So I, I got the opinions of people who are already doing it. So I love that. I mean, you mentioned there that it's a benefit to the people that want to learn about real estate, but it's also a benefit to your company because there's no more blurry lines between work-life balance. It's all just connected and interwoven and companies are looking for ways they can incentivize employees. That's not just giving them a paycheck. It's giving them opportunities to go pursue passions that they want. What do you think you've really learned from that experience? Like, is it a true benefit to go out there and do all this heavy work? Like what Kind of talk us through that. It is a lot of work. Uh, one of the things I learned is that your first couple of months are going to be discouraging, most likely. Maybe it takes off immediately, but it, honestly, it's probably going to be a lot of work. My first three months running the club, I almost never got more than 10 people. We did it remotely before the pandemic over um, Skype and WebEx. We'd get like 10 people in the room. We were not allowed to advertise at our place of work, so I couldn't put up you know, something on the local cork board or advertise it on our, our internal social media sites until I found the right people to talk to. And one of those was the employee resource organization, which maintained a calendar of events. And I got onto their calendar of events that really boosted our numbers. What I'll say is that don't be discouraged when you're starting off, find a niche to work in and find the right people to work with. Yeah, that's great. Great tips. Great tips. And I know you also said to me one time that you went to your other clubs and just got like a five minute advertisement of, hey, I'm doing this if any of you all are interested, because chances are the people that are attending one club are interested in attending another one too, if they even have mm -hmm. a slight interest in the niche you're talking about. Fantastic, fantastic. So I want to switch gears now and go into our last portion of the show where I ask five same questions to everyone. We'll start with what is your favorite book? My new favorite book that I've recently read is Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey. He's the CEO of Whole Foods. And in that book, he talks about how the profit motive is not what should be driving us. Just like being a living person, the point being alive isn't to produce red blood cells. It's a higher purpose than that. And your business needs to have a purpose towards seeking the betterment of people, not only employees, but investors, customers, uh, competitors, you need to have a win, 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 win mindset. Elevating your thinking and promoting welfare of people is really the primary purpose of your business. And doing that in a profitable way is entirely consistent with capitalism. And I think we are seeing this huge movement from shareholder 
interest to stakeholder interest. And in that mm. line of sight, you know, customer and employee is a stakeholder in a certain company. And there's nothing more personal, I think, in a person's life than their home and where they live. You're implementing that by offering them safe, affordable housing and multifamily. I believe the person you are 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do today and the habits that you have. What is something that you do every day? What is something that I do every day? I go on walks with my family. That is one thing I do every day. You know, one of the reasons why we invest is so that we have more time to be with our family. So I would say that not neglecting that while you're investing or while you're working on your career is really important. Awesome. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Find people who have done it before you. So if you're interested in going into real estate, go find somebody who's already where you want to be. That's the number one top of the shelf. That's the best thing you can do. Uh, listening to podcasts is great, but actually going to somebody who's done it, adding value to them and helping them do it so that you can learn to do it. That's an apprenticeship, right? That, that's a way of transferring knowledge and that's the best way to do it. Oh man, we could go on full tangent on this because I couldn't agree more and it's taken me a long time to realize that, but going to people like that is also not teach me what you know, or what can mm -hmm. I do for you? Be very attuned to what that person needs. And you'll learn that by listening to them, doing research to them, reading their book, looking at their LinkedIn or whatever like that, and come to them with, hey, I think I can help here and be willing to do it for free. And mm -hmm. you'll be surprised how much that'll pay dividends. The other thing is, is that there's never a point where you stop learning and you stop adding value to other people. Even if people are coming to you to learn, you're always going to somebody else who knows more. And mm -hmm. so you're just continually improving by finding people that are up in your game. Love it. What's the thing you're most proud of in your life? What's the thing I'm most proud of? Well, my family. <laughs> so, uh, oh, besides my family. Boy, I'm a very family oriented person. <laughs> so I would say that I'm. I am very proud of the club that I've put together at work. It, you know, it's nowhere near on the same level as my family. Being a good father, overcoming bad habits. So I'm a very purpose-driven person. I've overcome, you know, an addiction to alcohol, which was very difficult. Very proud of that. And, you know, raising good kids, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I know kudos to you because that's a huge struggle. And I know that giving that gift to your family is more, they, they'll see that. And that can be the biggest learning lesson they'll get from you is seeing their father overcome something so, so hard like that. So kudos to you. Last question is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I'm going to punt on that question and just say that it's important to meet a lot of people that are ahead of you where you are. I love it. Sorry. <laughs> I love it. And diverse people. I love Absolutely. your idea too, that the concept of there's always people above you. I mean, even though you feel like you know a bunch in one area, there's a whole different segment of life that you know nothing about. So sitting down with those people is could solve a lot of the problems we have today in the world, I feel like, if you're just willing to sit down with somebody that knows different things than you know. So Daniel, this has been fantastic for me. Where can people find out more about you? So you can go to Real Estate Investing for Professionals or REI for Professionals. Or if you want the shortened version, you can email me directly at daniel at rei4pro.com. 
Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time. I know we didn't get into some of the areas that I kind of in the rabbit holes that I wanted to go down. So I look forward to having you on soon so we can go explore some of those areas as well. Thank you, Matt. It's been really good. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.